it was over there that one of the coaches tapped me on the shoulder and sort of said, hey, you know, would you like to go to the Junior World Orienteering titles? You should try out. And I sort of said to him, well, like, where are they? And he said, Estonia. And I just remember nodding my head <laughs> and going home to Tasmania and pulling out the family atlas and being like, I just had no idea. Hello and welcome to The Run-In, sponsored by Envy and Straight Compasses. Our interview this week is with Hanny Alston, an Australian orienteer who won gold in both Junior World Champs Long and World Champs Sprint back in 2006. Hector Haynes has been chatting to her about her very turbulent life, so we will hear a lot from both of them later on in the episode. But first, Will, there's basically kind of two pieces of news, I guess, this episode. Some orienteering... And then no orienteering, <laughs> or at least in England <laughs> anyway, because um, uh, there is still orienteering going on uh, in Scotland, depending on which kind of tier the Scots are in. Um, yeah. But first, Lakeland Warrior Weekend, uh, and you uh, you actually got to race this time. Yes, yes, finally, my orienteering season has both begun and ended in one weekend. Um, so I went on a very tumultuous high followed by a very quick come down on Sunday afternoon. Uh, but yeah, no, it's brilliant. Firstly, I guess, you know, thanks to everyone who put the event on because not only was it, you know, really seamless, worked really well. Um, there's a great atmosphere there, but also there was a couple of new formats for, uh, for an overall, um, kind of stage race for the weekend, which is great. So there's a middle distance on, um, on Saturday afternoon, which was two people starting at the same time. Um, two minute gaps between uh, each pair and you ran A and B loops coming through the start and finish to start your second loop. So it was um, complete. I think Martin Bagnus said there was three metres difference between each loop. So they were pretty much bang on. That was just where the start box was as well. So uh, almost perfectly bang on even for, for both of them. So you got a good amount of head to head racing from people who were already out there. But also you didn't see the person who you started on any more than maybe once if you were coming through the arena passage. So it was a real proper stressful head to head of not knowing where they're at or having any kind of feedback um, from your own race as much as you'd expect to have. Um, Were you paired with someone who was about the same speed as you? Yeah, precisely. Yeah. So I was paired with Ali Thomas and um, through the first loop, I came through about 10 seconds behind him. And then through the second loop came for about 15 seconds ahead. So, uh, yeah, almost perfectly even um, all the way through. And I think it, that kind of worked out for most people um, for who they were paired against. I think it was only Gigi who turned up a bit late for his start. So he didn't have anyone. So he had a bit of a tougher time out there than, than the rest of us. But brilliant fun. You know, this kind of head to head format is um, is a winner. I think we can definitely do more of it because it was still individual orienteering. You know, you you weren't following the person who you were at all, and uh, so did all, did those two loops kind of go in a similar shape, but not the same controls? They, they almost went backwards on each other. So the only bit where you were going in the same direction was on your last control, but even then you had a different control before that. So you were coming from different angles. So it was a uh, yeah, essentially opposites against each other. You know, some sections you were you were climbing as the other person was descending. So. Um, that was the only element you saw them on that was right at the far end of the end of the loop so yeah 4.7k two perfectly even loops and uh it was great absolutely brilliant fun there was a fantastic atmosphere um yeah it was it was what orienteering should be yeah and i guess it, it's that head-to-head racing so you're getting that kind of um 
I don't know. I think we both get the same motivation out of head-to-head racing. Like I'm much better yeah. at running a relay than like running an individual. So you've got yeah. that kind of motivation because you're up against somebody, but then you've also got that, you know, you're not seeing them all the time. You've not got that, like you're not on top of each other when you're running. So that's quite cool. Yeah. It's almost like you're hunting them down on the last leg of a relay and, and you're just trying to catch them and just come out ahead at the last control. So it's uh, it's brilliant fun. And that fed into... Um, so, so the original design was before you know the stricter COVID restrictions came in was that that and then the night race following it um, on the Saturday evening, which again a bit of a novelty for for a night race to be slotted in with uh, elite only races. You know, it's a bit of a novelty to have elite only races anyway. Um, and then it was meant to be a chasing start on the Sunday, so your um, your middle distance and then your night times would feed into your your time for the chase. That had to be changed slightly with the guidance of um, however many people could start near each other. So it became a seeded. Uh, we, we used the start times from the night race, which was kind of based loosely on the seeding from uh, from the first race, you know, give or take. So that was the only change for the weekend, but it all fed into an overall time for an overall winner for the weekend as well. So, uh, yeah, two two kind of novelties, I guess, feeding into one really good weekend. Well, I mean, you you would think it was very good, and I'm not surprised you're, yeah. um, you know, it, say, saying how great it was considering you won that middle distance. Yeah, I, I, which was quite a surprise, to be honest with you, because um, my main fear beforehand was that I knew I was in good physical shape, but I didn't know how the running speed would match up to what has been a general lack of navigation and, and a lack of racing compared to everyone else. Especially in the lakes, I mean... Yeah, yeah, rocky, tough technical stuff, which is where I came unstuck on the uh, on the Sunday and ended up slightly off the map at one point. But we'll, we'll get into that. Well, um, <laughs> should we go to the Sunday then? Let's keep it short and sweet. What happened, yeah. then, Will? Uh, I ran off the map at one point. Oh uh, <laughs> so I, uh, I, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't ba- that bad. Um, it wasn't for very long. Uh, no, so I just I because so the areas that they chose are fantastic because they're places where not many people have actually oriented in the last few years there's been a couple of training events or maybe a compass sport cup closed event there but um i think the majority of people haven't actually oriented there in the last 15 years or so they've not had a major event so they were really kind of fresh terrain for most people and uh, the sunday was the southern part of grisdale at um, a place called old breasty Hawes or blind lane depending on on your preference for the uh, the naming convention, um, and I uh, it was quite rocky and technical and and steep, and there was a section where it finally opened up into good running, and I'd I'd been caught by Gigi and Johnny Crickmore, and we'd all caught uh, Nathan Lawson, so it was a nice good pack of four of us, um, and I was like yes. Time to open up the running. Here's my chance to shine. And I ran too quickly for my navigation and kind of ran off the map uh, and got and, and lost the pack um, and lost Gigi and Johnny. So, yeah, my <laughs> that was the uh, the nadir of my weekend. But it was it's still brilliant fun. And I was just running with a kind of big smile on my face still. But not was it kind of like a shorter long distance? So not a full long distance length? Yeah, it was only an hour. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, to hour. be honest, if you'd run a middle distance, then the night race, and then like a full long distance the next day, all within like two days. Of... Well, it was, it was within twenty out. It was in twenty four hours. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow, that would have been a lot. Yeah, it would have been. Uh, so, who did well out of this whole weekend then? Well, if we go for, I, I think who did the best, it has to be Cecilia Anderson on the women's courses because she took three out of three. 
<laughs> the whole weekend. And, and actually, the men's, for, for, apart, apart from the long distance, you were all running the same course? We were, and she smashed a lot of the guys. So um, she was... And uh, we, we ran next to each other, actually, on the middle distance at one point, and she was running fast. She's in good shape. So uh, I would say, yeah, outstanding performer of the weekend has to be Cecilia. Um, very impressive stuff. Um, on the middle distance, she was only 6.55 down. Um on me in the uh, on the Saturday which I think she was uh, she was head of you know GB internationals um from this past year so you know yeah I think that uh, enough said really <laughs> yeah <laughs> fantastic and then obviously uh yourself as well and then and Gigi I think did well on the men's side yeah yeah so I I, I think my my result on Saturday was I, I think I think it's pretty good. Yeah, I'd say so. But um, <laughs> Gigi on the night is always Beast. yeah a monster and can just hold that pace. And uh, I think for any of us to guys to beat him on the night would have been a pretty tall order. Ali Thomas did run him relatively close, um, which I was pretty impressed with. But uh, yeah, Gigi just held his own. Then again, in the rough terrain on the Sunday. It, it, He's just a bit of an animal, really. Nothing slows him down. The branches, all of this stuff. It's uh, it's really impressive just to, to run behind him and see him run as well because um, I've not had too many opportunities to actually do that. So, yeah, he was uh, very impressive after, you know, I don't think he's... Well, no one's really raced that much. And um, just to come out and just be clinical in the night, you know, mm. put minutes into everybody in the long, just shows, uh, yeah, he's a clinical operator. And I think Ali Thomas, I think you said he was injured or got injured on the, the long distance. Yeah, he did. He had an issue with his foot. Um, I think he did some damage to it on the night race. Um, and then he said that uh, he t- he tweaked it or, or jabbed it on a rock at some point in the Sunday and kind of knocked it on the head a bit just to be safe. But yeah, was running with a bit of an injury. I think he's got back to normal training now, but he had to have a few day- like last week on the bike just to, to be safe. But... I think, like we said for the last Lakes weekend, um, person in their final year as a junior, he would have had a really great jaywalk this year if it hadn't been for everything getting cancelled. So it's really disappointing, obviously, for him not to have had that opportunity. But I think showing how that he'll be a, a real danger next year when he steps up to being a first-year senior. Yeah, already proving to be, you know, a favorite you know on the on the that definitely on that list of those ones you have to watch out for on the and any you know senior men's races that's mm. pretty uh exciting to be honest um absolutely and just presumably just nice to kind of see a lot of people at least those who could make it there within the restrictions yeah yeah definitely which it it i think most people did make it i'm not sure i think it was only the people in wales who really got um mm. hung up by the uh by their local lockdown so it was lovely to see people. I've not seen some people since um, since World Cups in China and the British middle distances last year. Like people like you know who I've been to uni with and things like that. So like very close personal friends I've not had the chance to see. So it's really nice just to be back in what felt like an almost familiar environment. And yeah, it, it felt like such a nice atmosphere and everyone was just really reveling in in being back. And some people who also hadn't oriented for uh, for a year maybe maybe two and just looking to get back into the sport as well which is really nice to see 
Well, that sounds great. And from one, you know, great normal feeling orienteering event to yeah. no more orienteering at least for a little bit. Uh, another lockdown in England where all, you know, organised events are off. Events are still allowed in Scotland, but there are kind of travel restrictions, especially in the top two tiers. And including, Will, a TVOC event that we were both actually going to. I know. I know. Uh, so I was really looking forward to it. So. And no more. Uh, yeah, we could have done a live pod. For, well, we couldn't because of social distancing. Um, we couldn't because I was going to go have to, have to go straight off to work again. That too. Um, but yeah, it looked like really good fun. It was where uh, Bucks was a few years ago at Brabenham Woods in Oxfordshire. So it, it would have been really good fun. I was really looking forward to it, but no, sadly no more. And um, there are some map run leagues happening. I don't know if, Catherine, you're looking to do any of them. Um, yeah, I'm trying to start one up a little kind of like street series urban stuff because obviously permissions it's been a big difficulty for our club been really really tricky to get any events going we didn't actually have any events in that little window between the two lockdowns we were going to have one i think last weekend and then it never of course never happened so um trying to get something like a little kind of street league going so my mm. event's gonna go live this weekend so oh, that'd be good. Be, yeah yeah should be, it's, should be fun. it's just odd isn't it how so i think wales was in their mini lockdown they couldn't come to the lakes but now there's local races for swansea bay going on this weekend um i saw during the week that edinburgh university club are doing a track time trial against each other because they're able to do that and have that many people um, but they obviously can't travel without outside their vicinity and then England is full on shut down. So it's just, yeah, it's, you've just got to get lucky, I suppose, haven't you, at the moment? But there's a vaccine coming, so maybe we'll be Exactly. Well, who knows how you know far off that is in actual reality, but it has given a lot of people a lot of hope. And, um, you know, as again, they're kind of the same with the last lockdown. We just have to kind of wait and see how things go forwards but you know i mean i'm at least able to get out how's it been for you is this be this one being better or worse than the first one um i think with it being darker and and still working full-time it's probably been a bit worse and and because you're rest- well the restrictions and train partners are kind of similar aren't they um so i think it's probably a little bit worse just because of the dark and this, well, there's still not being anything on, but I was meant to go out to Sweden for a, for a relay out there, but obviously that's no, not possible now, and that has been cancelled as well, so we're not the only ones feeling the effects. Hopefully there's a lot to get people through this next period. Yep, uh, there's also, don't forget, there's some uh, orienteering unlocks, the new name for lockdown, orienteering, all those virtual things going on as well. So oh, yes. let's move on to today's interview and we've brought Hector Haynes in welcome Hector as you've done this one for us with Hanny Alston so Hector why don't you start by kind of telling all of us who may not know who Hanny is like you know who is she yeah I mean Hanny is an incredible athlete an incredible person and she is an Australian oriented many of you will remember her from uh, yeah a few years back she was big on the international scene of course she was the first non-European to ever win a world championship senior uh, gold medal of course wow. win the world championship well um, and while she was still a junior she did that an incredible achievement she did it all the way from Tasmania you know training week in week out all the way through her junior career in Australia and then just coming over to Europe for the summers and for the big races and do you know her personally as well 
Yeah, of course. Um, we've competed together at a number of world championships, overlapped a bit um, in the junior championships as well. And how did this interview come about in the first place? Yeah, well, she's written a new book and it's really a book about her life. It's a, it's a kind of autobiography and she's not very old, of course, but um, a lot has I happened. I think she's uh, like 34 yeah, exactly, exactly. And and a lot has happened in her life. She's had to deal with a lot of stresses and injuries, but not just, you know, athletics related. Um, she's been dealing a lot with mental illnesses. I feel like this interview needs to come with a trigger warning. It does get pretty, uh, yeah, intense at times. Deep. Um, yes. So trigger warning, this is an official trigger warning in terms of suicide eating disorders um you know take care if that's anything that's likely to cause an issue with you so yeah um but it's it's a lot of it's a lot also about kind of her philosophy of you know how to be successful as well that's enough talking about uh, the interview let's just get on and have a listen so yeah we're going to play it in two parts this is part one of uh, hector's interview with hanny alston Hanny, welcome. Great book. Thank, Thank you very much. Thank you for taking the time to read it. Like we were just saying before we come on air how uh, vulnerable an experience it is, not just to write a book, but I think the realisation really hit me when I saw the first copy start to get sent out in the mail and it was at that moment that you suddenly remembered that you actually had to have an audience. Um, so, yeah, thanks for being one of the readers to hold a space for me. Yeah, no, absolutely. I just thought we'd start by talking a little bit about, you know, give us a little bit of insight into, you know, why, why you wrote it um, and this sort of thing. I mean, I think the answer to that question is slightly multi-pronged. Mm-hmm. I, I love reading. I love writing. I've always been like that. So, you know, I think I'd always had this dream one day to put pen to paper, whether that was just for myself or to compile it into a book but I was definitely the young girl who would pick up the autobiographies as a as a kid and you know, yeah. devour them and, and gain inspiration from them but I think that as I have done the work on myself and come to understand myself I came to really feel that I had a story that I wanted to share with others because I I, as you know now from reading the book and as people will come to hear about no doubt through this conversation there were a lot of incredible highs um, and there were incre- a lot of very challenging valleys that I went through as well and I felt that it's so important to be able to highlight that life is never a straight line mm. and for those people who strive for excellence and the type A achievers amongst us to realise that that pathway is also not necessarily a straight line. And I I certainly found that when I was in the thick of it, I didn't really always know where to turn to. And I guess in some ways I wrote the book to provide that um, that me too moment for other people who might be experiencing some of the, the many and varied challenges that I had along the way. So I think it was that and I think the final motivation was that it's just been one wild ride in an amazing way and I wanted to be able to just remember all of that when I'm grey and old so there's a little self-motivation in there as well. Yeah I guess it's a little bit of like for you 
you want to kind of process everything that's gone on in your life. And then, you know, the writing of the book in its in and of itself was a great thing to be able to do to process what you've done in your life and to and to move on and to grow from it as well. Completely, so. completely. But I, but that is um, and I was very aware of that when I was writing it. That it, it's a very fine line to make sure that you're not using this as a counselling session. <laughs> um, exactly. I wouldn't have been ready to to write the book even if I'd sat down a year or two earlier, because again, as I come to talk about in the book, I spent, you know, a number of years where I realized that I needed to kind of lean in and, and come to learn to understand myself in a, in a different way. And, and as a woman, and yeah. I hadn't made that jump yet. So I definitely didn't want the book to be a complete self discovery moment, but I think sure. I wanted it to be more of a celebration of you know, what I'd done, but where I'd also got to. So you're right. But yeah, it was, that's a very fine line. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, let's, let's start sort of in the beginning, um, where you talk about your family and your childhood and growing up. I think your mum says at some point, you know, uh, she says, Hanny, don't ever grow up. Tell us a little bit about, you know, what it was like growing up uh, in Tasmania on the farm. That is my earliest memory was my mum like carrying me down the road where we were living. I grew up on an organic hobby farm about half an hour south of Hobart. And for those people who don't know where Hobart is, like it's in Tasmania and Tasmania is an island off the island of Australia, which is about as far south as you can get from Europe. So we grew up in a relatively isolated environment and in that moment my mother was carrying me just saying please don't grow up because I spent my entire childhood as what I called it times in the book I was like a tomboy um we had 12 acres but we had whole valleys to explore and our little farm was nestled in the bottom of one particular valley surrounded by close neighbors so I was very much the rebel child so you know, when it later came to getting involved in the sports of orienteering and trail running, it probably was a very natural evolution from that person that I'd come to really strongly identify with. And um, I certainly experienced in the writing process of the book that my childhood memories are almost some of my strongest memories, like the most vivid, the most colourful. And um, I think that first sort of 17, 18 years of my life was just so joyful. I got a little sense that, you know, that playfulness, that uh, kind of want for adventure that you have, that is a theme that runs throughout the book, that was really seeded within your early years, wasn't it? <laughs> I've, got a, I've got, a little, uh, got a little piece here about your, your dad's search for the perfect campsite. Do you, would you say, like, that sort of experience, was that the basis of your toughness? Camping out in the rain, in the cold, this sort of thing is, is not easy things for, for young kids to do, right? Yeah, yeah, it's exactly right. I, I, I do agree with your statement that, that my childhood was so formative in, in the way that I would eventually go on to view life. Um, but I also giggle with my father these days because... I guess the, the joke is really that he could have made us or broken us, my brother and I. Um, there were just the two of us growing up. And, you know, we could have either leaned in and loved those experiences or we could have leaned out and, you know, walked the other way and become the child that left for the urban environment and never returns. And 
I feel very, very blessed that I'm sort of of the former, not the latter. Um, my brother did fall out of love with the natural environment for some period of time and has eventually kind of rekindled that. And and there were times for myself too, particularly later on when I went on to do marathon running, that I, um, I thought that maybe that part of me was over. But I've come to realise that that love of adventure is really sitting in us in what I call an adventure muscle. And it's like any muscle in your body and any, any skill that you have, if you don't use it, you, you lose it. And after living in urban environments like central Melbourne and Auckland and even Canberra a little bit later on, and then returning to Tasmania where it really is just so wild. And, you know, right now it's pouring with rain and snowing and sleeting. And um, yeah, I think, I found it really quite unnerving to sort of get back out into that adventurous streak. So I guess, like I say to everyone, if you, if you feel like you ever get to that point where you're not sure if that's you anymore, it might just be because that muscle needs to be used again. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to think about that. For me, I would say it's part of your emotional self to have that sort of like exploration you know, that kind of drive, it's, it's one of your core values is like exploring. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this sort of thing can provide great like value for, for yourself and for your inner being. Yeah, no, I, and I agree with that, actually. The more adventurous that I've become again and rekindled that adventure muscle through the course of my life, actually, you're right, the more adventurous I've been in, like, <laughs> that was going to sound really bad, like in relationships, but, you know, in my friendships and in, you know, the, the interests that I have and in my art and writing. And you're right, it, it is. And I think you're right, it is an emotional element because I think so many people look at, um, the role models of sport and adventure and exploration and think that they don't suffer or they don't feel pain or maybe that they love suffering if they do, but it's not necessarily the case. Um, and I think fear and adventure go hand in hand together, yeah. but afterwards so does elation, you know, yeah. that feeling of I've done it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it, like you say, it doesn't always have to be so much hard work. Um, as a 10 and 11-year-old, you went to the World Row Gaining Championships and did over 68, well, 68 kilometres as a 10-year-old and you say over 70 as an 11-year-old, so with your family. Yeah. Course, so that's, pretty, yeah. that's pretty extreme for a 10 and 11-year-old. Yeah, that was um, my dad's idea that he wanted to go and see the wildflowers in Western Australia. Um, but he just so happened that there was a row gain on at the same time and what perfect opportunity and the excuse to go and see the wildflowers. So, yeah, I mean, I remember that experience being fairly, fairly miserable. Like that was probably when I said to you about giggling with dad about he could have made us or broken us. I think mm-hmm. that was the moment when I very well could have broken yeah. because I remember at about 11 o'clock at night holding onto his hand as we walked down some fire trail in the dark and just crying (laughs) begging to be released from the torture but but again you know it's it's both the great and the challenging moments in our lives that are so shaping and become such strong memories and um yeah but but it was definitely interesting being um a wild child but also a type a very driven perfectionist personality 
with a very, very strong sense of curiosity because if there was one word that I would use to describe myself, it would be curiosity. I think it's what drives my adventure and drives everything that I do. But I grew up between two polar opposite parents, a mother who was incredibly black and white, very scientific, a medical practitioner and exceptionally driven and organised, and a father who just had this like, what if we were to kind of brain and and is um also very curious but very spiritual in his curiosity and um very gentle and i sort of was the child that really got right in the middle of those two and um at times that that was very challenging yeah (laughs) in a good and and a hard way yeah i mean that's incredible like you know you you also sort of from that point and from this like wild child base got into training I guess uh we can talk a little bit about that firstly you were a swimmer mm-hmm. uh, doing a lot of swim training because your mother was a swimmer right she she was the one to yeah. lead you into that sport yeah my mum had always had a love of swimming and was quite a talented swimmer in her youth as well uh, racing up to sort of a fairly high level in within the Australian talent pool. So I sort of got thrown in the pool at a young age and I always loved being in the water. But um, And I was very excited to be allowed into the squatty environment, which I joined <clears throat> before I was 10 and was very, very heavily involved from the age of 11 onwards. And yep. I always saw that as my calling. Um, again, as I write in the book, I had three dreams as a as a child. I wanted to go to the Olympics. I wanted to be able to live and train at the Australian Institute of Sport, which was very famous in that era. And um, I wanted to be a doctor. <laughs> I sort of laugh now because none of them, none of them really happened. Um, I dabbled in all of them, but um, swimming was very much what I saw was my path, which was such a, in many ways, such a huge contrast from that carefree growing up on a farm environment. And, um, yeah. Yeah. But I guess it's, it it provided a a good routine or a good amount of routine, not to say that the routine was good necessarily, but you say in the book, like over time, the routine became just that a routine, a series of packing bags, trying to remember underwear and school ribbons squeezing in dinner, hurriedly finishing school homework before fatigue overwhelmed. I have strong memories of being perpetually tired as I grew into my shrinking school shoes. This fatigue translated to a slow falling out of love with swimming and growing cheekiness in the classroom. I think that's, for me, that sums up like, you know, having to move from the sort of the playfulness and the, you know, the adventure into this sort of routine strikes me after reading the book at least as um a little bit incongruous or a little bit you know different yeah completely and i really did lose it lose a lot of my sense of self through that era in the pool Mm. i in i went from i think i became a bit more not amongst my peers in at home because my best friends lived like literally 100 meters down the road and I, i pretty much spent my entire childhood with them but I think at home I became a lot more withdrawn and I think that was because I didn't know how to express my emotions emotions were not part of our family um 
you know, if you were angry, you were just sent outside to climb a tree and just sort of wear it off, basically. And so, yeah, I think I withdrew at home, um, but I, I probably became rebellious at school <laughs> because of that. But when I went to the swimming environment, um, I was another person altogether again, and that was just someone that wanted to hide almost the whole time. And I mean, I wanted to excel, but I, I certainly kind of hugged to myself a lot. And it was just because that swimming environment was so, it, it wasn't just strict, it was authoritarian to the point of crossing that knife edge where we were striving for performance and getting on the other side where it was just so unhealthy. And the example of that that I have is that at the age of 13, we were skin folded every week. Um, we, our food, we had to log food diaries and training diaries every single week. And at one point, our coaches stood us all up and said, sit down if you've eaten a chocolate biscuit. Sit down if you've eaten ice cream. <laughs> Probably stolen something that you were going to mention, but, you know, sit down if you've had cheese and butter and everything was labelled as bad until there was one girl left standing and... It was just that kind of strictness to the point of almost being abusive that I think led to just me slipping into a state of unhappiness. And further to that, there was a bit of bullying and jostling for sort of attention in the swim squads that I was in. And it just wasn't a happy place. Um, and I hadn't, I didn't realise that until I left it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll definitely get on to the, um, how do I want to say this succinctly, just the body image of an athlete mm. and this sort of thing. Um, but, but you know, the training was paying off, right? You, you were getting fit, you were, yeah. you were coming like sure. an athlete, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, at the age of 13, I was swimming at the national elite senior level. I was um, finaling, I was finalist in, you know, state, I'm sorry, not state, national championships. I was breaking records in Tasmania. I mean, I was a, I was a pretty good swimmer. I mean, I giggle now and I look back and think, well, how the hell was I a 50-metre drop-dead sprint freestyler and I went on to become an ultra-distance athlete? But, you know, something happened. But, yeah, I, I definitely it was working for me. But I, I think one thing that I'd love to mention, because I think it's relevant at any age in any sport or anything that we do, is that... It's so important and when we teach pathways to performance, we teach the concept of patience um, because I think that that was really what was lacking in, in my experience in the swimming pool and probably to some degree later on in my journey through orienteering because I was one of those kids that hit puberty super young um, and as we all know from our own experiences that when we go through puberty, we have changes in our ability to perform as our body evolves and adapts to that experience. And it leads to long plateaus of performance. And it's very apparent in a sport like swimming, which is very power-based. And no one taught us that. And no one taught us that if you just kind of stick around and stick around and stick around and keep doing the work, that eventually, you know, your time will come again. But to go from like early blooms of success to this like horrible plateau combined with the sort of, um, I guess, authoritarian nature of that squad environment, I just, 
yeah, it was just very challenging. Good things come to those who wait often. Uh, but of course, the hard work needs to be done as well. So if we just move on then from the swimming, you were then, of course, going through school. You were growing up and then you got into orienteering. We, we dabbled in it as a family. It was um, something that my brother was really interested in and I wasn't yet sort of young enough to probably be able to hold my ground because I really didn't love orienteering early on. I thought it was so daggy because I grew up in that era where like it was really cool to have like the most bright, lurid, pyjama-like outfit that you could possibly have. And, Still is, and in order... Sorry. It still is. Well, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I mean, I clearly remember like, okay, one, leg was red and one leg was yellow, so like it was pretty bad. But um, for, for those people in, on the, in the Northern Hemisphere, for Australia, we actually orienteer in winter so that our elite athletes can time their peak performance with world championships, which happen in your summer. So... For us, in growing up in Tasmania orienteering or as an orienteering child involved getting up in the early hours of the morning on a cold, dark farm and being bundled into a bright orange combi van with no heating and heading off to some sheep paddock in the middle of winter where there's, like, frost covering everything and then running through, like, melting, frost-dripping bushes, like, searching for controls only to get back and find that your father is yet again lost mm. and you're for three hours in the back of a frozen combi van until he gets back and that is my memory of orienteering mostly as as a child although I made amazing friendships but yeah the the trajectory into orienteering really came a bit later on when my parents took the management role of one of the teams in Tasmania and we went to the nationals when I was probably about 16 and I made my first team to go to New Zealand and I'd never been outside of Australia and like I say I was at this point in my swimming where I was plateauing super bad and I guess I'd started to wonder whether that dream was just a dream you know that I would never get to where I wanted to get to as an athlete it was still my ambition and and then suddenly I was in New Zealand and I was I was so fiddle fit, it was incredible. So I was winning races in the senior ranks um, with very, really very little background. And um, it was over there that one of the coaches tapped me on the shoulder and sort of said, hey, you know, would you like to go to the junior world orienteering titles? You should try out. And I sort of said to him, well, like, where are they? And he said, Estonia. And I just remember nodding my head. <laughs> and going home to Tasmania and pulling out the family atlas and being like, I just had no idea. And and just to suddenly have these incredible opportunities looking like they were opening up, it was, you know, it was just too exciting and it caught my heart and, and it went from there. And as you know, from those early experiences of junior world championships, they, you know, if you're not an orienteer yet, you will be once you've gone to the world championships. Like it's just the most incredible experience. So. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And you really like threw yourself into the sport from there on in. And you you had, you know, well-documented training journals that you were using all the time. You're listing your weaknesses as goals for the next session or events, writing them on the back of your hand. You did a lot of that um, and holding yourself to account. I think the thing, there's a few things that I want to mention on that. The, the first is that 
it wasn't necessarily driven by the need to succeed. It was driven from the opposite. It was actually driven from an amazing sense of curiosity that is just like I say, it's the one word that I would use to describe myself. And I'm one of those really almost masochistic people that loves to kind of be humbled by standing at the start of something with the journey stretching out in front of you. And because it is, it's just like a whole new journey that you can get your teeth stunk into. So it was the same process as writing this book. It was just like, I was actually happy to be the humble warrior at the beginning of that journey, not knowing how to write a book because, you know, there was so much to learn. So that was kind of where that drive came from. Um, But I think the second part of that is that you absolutely have to want to do all those things. You know, it's no point waiting for someone like a coach to come and tell you that you have to keep a journal and you have to do this and you have to finish every session. You Like, you've got to want to do that work. And I think it is that bit that is the difference between the true champions and the people who kind of maybe not quite get there or they get there and they don't last. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. That's, that's exactly how I see it as well, um, more or less. Yeah. And of course, from that, you know, you went to junior world championships, you went to senior world championships. And of course, everyone knows you became the first non-European to ever win the world championships in orienteering. And you did so as a junior. And maybe what many people don't know is, though, the, the, you know, the build up to that, um, you know, within your personal life. For the listeners, this, this might get a little bit more uncomfortable to listen to. Um, but yeah, so you, so your dad, he developed like bipolar disorder. Yeah, I think in honesty, it was probably something that had had existed at times in his life, but it became very, very prevalent um, when I was in my first year of university. And my brother at this point had, had moved out of home and we still lived on this family farm half an hour south of Hobart. So um, at this point, like, I didn't actually drive yet. I wasn't quite um, onto my pea plates, which just sort of gives you free reign in, in Tasmania. And my mum was um, had moved away from general practice medicine and was now doing a lot of sort of evening or night shift work as a medical doctor. And it was a bizarre sort of occurrence of events but just um going the year before I won my world title was my second last year of being a junior athlete and as you know um I podiumed in Switzerland in the junior world titles and then a few weeks later rocked up in Japan and made it onto the podium of the long distance titles but what, again, most people don't know about that experience that I had in Japan was that in the heats of the long distance race, which was my very first event in Japan, I was running down one of the hills and um, caught my ankle in a hole underneath all the bamboo grass and ended up rupturing every single ligament in my ankle. And I've managed to be able to finish the world t- titles by we had it bandaged, um, braced, and I think I had probably... I reckon I probably had four Panadol on board in each event just to kind of cope with the, the pain in it. But um, I got home and it became very apparent that I was really facing a fairly awkward predicament that 
if I didn't have surgery, everyone was saying that I would never run again. But if I did have surgery, there was a high chance that because of the amount and enormity of damage that I'd done, that they wouldn't be able to get it to a point where I'd have enough flexibility in the ankle to keep running either. So I was sort of faced with this predicament of like, you probably will never run again. And I was 19. And I have one more year to, to make it to the world titles. So again, curiosity kicked in and I was so driven to kind of heal this ankle And yet, just after I got back from surgery in mainland Melbourne where I had it done, um, yeah, my father had a bipolar event where, um, which resulted in him um, trying to take his own life in a very, very traumatic way, in a way that was very graphic and lasted for a very long period of time. So it was this perfect storm of events. I was in the thick of medical exams at the time I was on crutches from an ankle reconstruction, not knowing how it had really gone. I was unable to move myself around and I also became one of my father's carers after he left hospital. So I sort of felt in my mind's eye that I'd fallen in this huge hole that I didn't see coming and that I needed a dream to kind of keep me going. And so my dream became fixated on winning the world title, the, the junior world titles in Lithuania. And it was the long distance that really tickled my toes. So, yeah, it, it ended up becoming a, I had six months from that time of my father's accident to when the world titles were on in Lithuania. So I had six months to effectively get back on my feet and, um, yeah, well, I guess results speak for themselves, but I did. But it was an incredibly challenging time. And it was an incredibly emotional time even when I got to Europe because my father was still in and out of hospital. My mum was in and out of hospital. Um, my family farm, I found out, had been sold while I was actually racing the World Championship. So I got home to a sold home. Um, I was still in the midst of my medical exams and studies because the uni was unable to give me any leave grace and um yeah it was just the most surreal experience (laughs) yeah no absolutely and gosh i can't even begin to comprehend uh how that must have been for you you know the range of emotions and you know you talk about feeling so low like the lowest you've ever felt uh not just that but you your friends your family your coaches you're always very invested in whatever is happening with them. And it's incredible. You know, you talk in the book about how from this, you, you came to hold like an absolute belief on your way to the championship that you would, you would win. So you say, I awoke filled with a sense of purpose. I slipped out of the room I shared with a teammate and entered the quietness of the morning, watching the town awaken as I jogged stretching and easing my way into an awakened state. Returning to the hotel, I stripped down and stood beneath the beating shower, feeling the water running through my hair, a cascading massage from my head to my back. Heated to the core, I turned off the water and reached for my towel. It was then that I firmly laid eyes on the three words I had written on the back of my hand last night. Transcribed from lessons in my training journals and the etchings across my training maps, I'd summarized the way I wanted to run the race that day in three short words. Discipline, stop, compass. Act with discipline, avoiding the temptation to focus on the results. 
stop when in doubt to avoid unnecessary risks from rushing critical navigational decisions. Focus exceedingly carefully on my compass lines in the low visibility of the dense young competition forest we were racing into. If I executed the race as planned, the results would take care of themselves. I do, but I don't know where, where that absolute undeniable belief came that I would win that day. And it's not, I'm not stating it from ego. I think in my mind's eye, I was on, without realising it, my, my hero's journey. You know, I was overcoming the trials and tribulations and the great ordeal was coming. And I knew that if, I just knew that there was this other world on the other side of it that I needed to enter, but I didn't even know what that was all about. And so I absolutely knew that I was going to win that day. But it wasn't coming from like blind faith. It was just coming, like you say, it was coming from this discipline, this preparedness, this focus, this calmness. It was just the most surreal place to be and I think it is that epitome of almost the pre-flow state we don't talk a lot about that in sport but I'm pretty sure that some of um you know the world's greatest champions and their lead up to a gold medal will will also be able to talk about that state of just pre-performance and then of course that same summer you went on from the junior world championships to win the senior world championships in the sprint Mm. Let's go into the moments after that race or the months after. Did your identity as an athlete or as a person change? Yeah, I mean, I think there were a few key points in that moment. The first was that when I stood atop the dais that day and received the gold medal from Prince Frederick and went through that medal ceremony, I just had this incredible wave of like, you know, I'm still honey and success hasn't changed me you know, and I still have to go home and I still have to be able to address all these challenges that were thrown at me that are still kind of, like we said, in turmoil. That was a hugely profound moment for me. So I had this awakening of I'm Hanny. But when I got home, I was a world champion. I couldn't turn up to events without being a world champion. I was a world champion at uni. Everyone knew by that point. And Tasmania is a small place and they're avid sports fans. So, you know, I became a fairly prominent figure. And Yet at the same time, it felt like everyone was moving on. You know, friends were, I ended up dropping out of uni or taking leave from uni for a period of time. So, you know, uni friends continued on and family friends, you know, the immediate disasters had sort of simmered down and they were moving on. And I just got caught in this place of like, I don't know, just limbo and um, vulnerability and I was expected to be able to perform, but when your world is shaking and when you don't have rocks and support networks, you cannot climb, you know, or certainly not easily. And I just didn't really at that point know how to ask for help. So it was a very challenging time. And it got tougher, actually, as you know. Yeah, yeah. no, definitely. Let's, well, if, if you're okay, let's just talk a little bit about that then having your own struggles with mental health um, and with, as you term, your friend, Anna. Can you just describe a little bit, you know, the beginnings of your battles or your friendship with anorexia? I still don't completely, completely understand anorexia. I mean, 
I think that the seed was sown so early on in the swimming environment in that, you know, being scrutinised by what we ate. I mean, I wasn't, we weren't allowed to eat chocolate or lollies or anything. I didn't touch anything like that for years, you know, in that environment. I still think I was able to keep a very healthy relationship with food through it, but I think the seed was there and not to mention the fact that my nickname in the swimming environment was bush pig (laughs) Um, because I apparently lived in the bush and grew up on a farm. So it was, I was also very conscious because I was the child that went through puberty at sort of 11, 12 years of age and developed so much faster than a lot of my peers. And so, you know, I think I always was slightly conscious that I was feet feet taller than everyone else and and bigger and broader and I also had another nickname through that time called Thomas the Tank Engine because I was just I was built so strong from swimming so I think there was a little bit of that in that time I think after my father's attempt at suicide my mum really struggled as well and she stopped eating a lot and you know just was grieving in her own way and I think that even though I'd been thrust into the spotlight in other ways, I think I felt obscure, you know, and, and hidden because I couldn't, I had no skills of how to verbalise the emotions that I was experiencing. And so my rock became Max in the running environment. Max was my 80-year-old <laughs> diehard go-home kind of attitude coach, but with his hugely soft heart to him. And it was him who fed me the idea that he thought I could run. I wasn't just a a tree-hugging orienteer, you know, that I had this gift of running and he fed me the idea of a marathon. Yeah. And the Olympic marathon, in fact. And so I think I just got into that environment and didn't appreciate the toll that all of this was happening happening on my body you know stress is stress whether it comes from training or races or uni or family or being moved out of home because it was unreasonable to live there and traveling and time differences going to world titles and like it just added and and then once you get to a point of losing enough weight it then becomes a very fast slippery slope and people would comment on how fit you looked and and it just sort of fed it and fed that friendship and it very much was a friendship because I later come to understand that I was not anorexia I was Hani who suffered anorexia I really suffered in the hands of a friendship and that was the healing point for me but what became tougher and tougher was that as you know um, I lost my coach Max to a heart attack at training I then finally found another coach who became my rock and I I really trusted in her friendship because she'd experienced a lot of the, the challenges that I was facing as a young woman in this elite um, Australian athletic scene and then she eventually took her life as well. And so I just went, I guess I just got, I just kept getting knocked. But I think that every moment of that, as hard as it is to, to discuss it, as hard as it, as it was to write about it, um, was so strengthening because you realise that just because they're not here doesn't mean that they didn't give you the gifts that you were meant to carry on and take forward in life. And it's been those gifts and their generosity and their absolute belief in me that I think has given me so much confidence 
as a human being, as an athlete going forwards, and then also has really driven me into the work that I do today, which is helping other people to find their feet. Like you say, it's kind of all interlinked, but if we just go back and talk a little bit about the anorexia, I've got a small passage here I can read. I attended parties, but so too did anorexia. I'm not proud of sneaking into a host's kitchen to lick remnants of a pavlova, cream and jam from the pots that are sitting beside her sink, but it happened. And I woke the next day to run extra kilometers because I was too scared to let anorexia invite bulimia into this friendship with us too. And it happened. You're a minuscule 45 kilograms and a running skeleton. And you had anorexia for three years of your life. And, but, you know, it, it really affected your emotions. You talk about how, you know, you would get angry, although it wasn't Hanny getting angry. It was anorexia getting angry. It's kind of like there's someone else in your head the whole time. And you know that you're there. Like, but this other voice, it's sort of like having the radio too loud and you're trying to have a conversation with the world or someone in a room, but this radio is so loud. You know, it reminds me of the other night, my my mum's just bought a grand piano, right? And we went over there for dinner with a few friends and we were chatting and mum sat down at the grand piano in, a, in her tiny, beautiful little cottage and started playing the grand piano. And we were trying to have a conversation and it, it was just so hard to kind of focus on the conversation because all you could hear was the grand piano. And, and that's, that is the same analogy as anorexia, you know, you eat your piece of toast and half an apple for breakfast after a long run and then 10 minutes later it'll be talking to you about what you're going to have for lunch and that conversation would literally go until lunchtime and even when you finally thought that you'd got through you know the noise that you were going to have your sandwich anorexia would rock up next to you and tell you just to have the other half of the apple that you didn't eat at breakfast and and that was that and there were only a few moments when it, when it hushed and it was when I was running or when I was focused in the depths of my studies, which I really enjoyed at that time. I went on to study primary school teaching or, you know, when I was racing and I could really shut that noise out. Um, and I was lucky that I, d- I was able finally to talk about it with Jackie, this, this coach that I went on who had gone through similar struggles and was an incredibly elite athlete in her own right. But when I lost Jackie to suicide, I think it was just so hard to confront that friendship. And that was the moment when it really got the better of me for a period of time. Um, I think I was one of the lucky ones that just knew I I had to confront it and eventually was able to reach out for help. But that, that was the hardest point of all of that was reaching out to help and being, I don't know, 24, whatever I was, 24 years of age and being like, I don't know how to eat. (laughs) It just seems like something that's so fundamental to human life and yet I do not know how to eat. And then even then you fight with people who want to help you, you fight with everything like, and it's not a fast journey. You don't just get better the day you want to get better. It's a long bloody road out of that. And I don't know if you completely ever lose it. I can still know that if I am underfueled myself for a day, you know, overtrained, I'm overstressed, life's spinning a bit, you know, through the thick of COVID, classic example, that voice will pipe up. But I'm just lucky that I've worked on myself and I've really come to just 
have tools and things that I can use to sort of stay, you know, without the friendship. <laughs> so that was part one from the interview with Hanny Alston. I mean, I think a lot of themes there, I think particularly about patience and the effects of stress that I'm sure lots of people can um, take into Uh, their own experiences so part two is going to be coming out next week and it's going to be looking at kind of athlete health learning to slow down she's going to talk about spontaneously running the spine of the Pyrenees just because she wanted to why not a lot of uh, philosophy of kind of how she gets the most out of her life with all the experiences that she's been had so really really looking forward to part two coming out next week um before the end of the podcast we want to say thank you to our sponsors envy and straight compasses and um will you're going to tell us a little bit about the straight compasses uh, yeah because i did i didn't use mine on sunday <laughs> and i should have <laughs> well that's um... how you ran off the map that is how I ran off the map by a lack of discipline with my compass. Yeah, yeah. The great, the great point I find about the um, straight compass has got a really fine um, point on the end of it for helping you to thumb the map and keep constant focus on where you are. I found that really helpful in trying to create some extra compass discipline for myself, which you know I didn't utilise this weekend, but really helps you in that kind of rougher technical terrain. Keep a focus on where you are at all times to help you just in case you lose you lose contact. So something that I'm going to be working on. Um, for the coming weeks in my own training of you know making sure I utilize that that really fine nib of the uh, the compass to keep a track of where I am yeah keep that focus exactly on where you are where you need to read all the detail you can also see a lot of the detail through the compass itself it's very um, mm. transparent so you can see a lot of that map through there and we actually know that Mary Fleming's got a lot of uh, straight compasses just in uh, she's a distributor one of the distributors in the UK if you want to get any um, compasses or any shoes from Envy from her the email address as usual nvstraights.uksales at gmail.com that's nvii-str and then the number sales at gmail.com but that is it will for this um episode i guess we're going to be back uh next week with uh, the second part of the hanny alston interview and then we'll be back in a couple of weeks time with another regular episode again so we'll, we'll see you then bye